And I want to read to you. We're not going to get through the whole chapter as much as I'd like to get through the whole chapter. But let's at least try to tackle the first 37 verses. What we're going to find in the chapter, it's 44 verses, but in the first 37 verses, there are two stories of the situations with this man, Elishama, or as we, Elishama, who we see here is Elisha. Uh, And they both will involve women with their children, both of them in the face of an abject tragedy. Uh, And then in the final two stories, starting in 38, uh, to the rest of the chapter, we're going to see actually two stories that involve grain. So we can call next week if you will, no pain, no grain. But in this particular portion, we're in roughly the 800s BC. Well, that's actually roughly, we can say that. Uh, that means there were roughly 100 years before the northern kingdom of Israel is going to be taken with hooks in their mouths and in their jaws by the Assyrian Empire uh, and dragged off into slavery. So we are in a place where the Israel, and again, the entire nation of Israel is split in sort of had a Captain America and Civil War kind of thing, where the south we have sort of Judah, and we have Benjamin and a few renegade Levites who wanted to stay true to Jerusalem. Everybody else was in the north. So if you've ever heard the term 10 lost tribes, that's where that comes from, is the tribes in the north, there were 10 of them, and they were the ones taken captive by Assyria. I don't think they're lost. God knows exactly where they are. Just the same. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's dive right in. And I really do believe God has an amazing thing for each of us here today who have braved the, you know, single-digit temperatures and the 17 snowflakes that have fallen. Um, Pray with me, would you please? God, I want to thank you for the opportunity to praise you and to tell you that I love you. And now, Lord, to study your word, knowing, God, you have such beautiful things to tell us tonight. So let your word burst open and come alive for us. Captivate us in your word deeper and more meaningfully than we've ever been held before. And Lord, I pray you would redeem every second and that this message would be in width and in length and in depth exactly where you want it to be. I pray, Lord, you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive. But Lord, you would come upon me that you would speak through me and you would immerse me that you would be the one seen. And now bespoke a word to each of us or many. But we just want to say tonight, thank you for being here. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. And Lord, for those who have um, found themselves in more uh, familiar confines than the ones of this room tonight, I just pray you would meet them there as well. So bless this time in your word, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would say tonight as I would any, please do not just believe me. Do not just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor is coming to take away my two sons for them to be slaves. So Elisha said to her, Well, what should I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Then he said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons, and then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debt. 
you and all your sons live on the rest. In our first seven verses, we have obviously this, this situation here with a woman who's in a terrible, terrible situation in the Middle East. Now, roughly, if you will, roughly 3,000 years ago, a little less than 3,000 years ago. For a woman to have lost her husband in a place where they weren't necessarily allowed to work would have been one thing as long as she had sons. But for her sons then to actually have been pulled from her or for the potential of them being pulled from her is another story altogether. She would be in the most vulnerable place a woman could possibly be in those circumstances. But we're not talking about a hussy. We're not talking about a woman who seems to have somehow sowed wild oats and this is the crop and reaping of that. This is a woman who is a wife of the son of a prophet. Now, sons here could be that they were literally sons of the prophets or it could be that this was a school of the prophets for which then they would have been called sons. In either case, we have a decent, in essence, assumedly, a decent Christian, or I should say in this case, a, a religious community seeking God. Now, one thing's clear is that the prophets weren't monks as we understood monks. They had wives, they had children. They were not celibate men. And this particular woman comes to Elisha knowing somehow that Elisha has a previous relationship with her husband. Notice what it says in verse 1. Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. So this seems to be a man who was a godly man. He was a faithful man. And yet somehow in this, he was still in some form of terrible debt, for which now his whole family was in a crisis as a result of it. And this is a godly woman in a crisis. And we definitely are reminded, you do not want to die owing, especially if you're leaving behind anyone you love. Like it or not, serving the Lord does not make you immune from the problems of life. It is important to note that David would say at the end of his life in Psalm 37, verse 25, I have been young, but now I'm old. Interesting, when David said he was old, he was 70 which I would say, mind you, 10 years ago, sounded really old. doesn't anymore. Young and I'm now old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. David says, in all the years that I've lived, I am confident of this. God takes care of his own. This is in Psalm 84 for what it's worth that no good thing will the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. The problem is, God reserves the right to decipher what He deems good. And there are many things that we in our lives, in our short-centeredness and lack of information, would have asked God for, convinced it was good. For which, by the way, God might have voted otherwise. and said, you know what, that may be good at a latter time, or that may have been good for another person, but it's not good for you. Those of you who know my youngest, she has wanted things like large knives and chainsaws since she was a little girl. And those who know her know, those things can be used in beneficial ways. I doubt that her particular motives would have been as benevolent. Here is a godly woman, and she is in crisis. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through 7, Jesus concludes by challenging us to not just listen to his sermon, but to put it into practice. And he says, the difference between not just listening, but doing as well, is compared to two men who built houses. They both built houses. 
the difference of doing is the foundation. He says, those that listen but don't do are like foolish men who build their house on the sand. Oh, it goes up easy and it goes up quick. We don't read that one house is more elaborate, extravagant, or impressive than the other, or less. He says, but the man who hears what Jesus says and does what he says is like a man who built his house on the rock. And then he said, the rains came down, the floods rose, and the wind beat against the house. And what he tells us is, in both cases, the one who listened and didn't do, and the one who listened and did do, they both felt the rains. They both saw the floods. And they both felt the wind pressing against the house. See, God will allow storms in your life. But one of the reasons God will allow those storms in your life is to show you whether your house is built on the rock or on the sand. The difference was not the storms. And we don't read that the difference was necessarily in its appearance. The difference was how it weathered those storms. In the situation with the man who listened but didn't do, we read, great was his fall. The house collapsed on itself because it didn't have the foundation to withhold those things that come part, parcel, and natural to living on this world. But the man who built his house on the rock, his house stood. And you watch people who have put their faith in all kinds of sand. It's fairly easy to stick your stick in the sand. And it'll stand up if you, pull, if you push hard enough. It just can't stand even the tide. Now, I've learned this. I can't say I, I was young and now I'm old. I'd say I'm young and I'm getting there. But there are things you clearly know about God. And two things you know he, is that He's almighty and He's all caring. And those are the hardest things to reconcile in both. When you're going through something you just can't understand because it just seems unfair and unkind to you. Because one of those two must be suffering, right? You love someone and they die. And I'm not trying to make light of that by any means. You're put in a situation that is so far beyond you. It's a relationship that is soured. It is a financial status that has changed radically. And all of a sudden, all the familiar comforts have evaded you. And you have to, and inside your brain is scrambling. Because somehow in it, you're convinced if you could just find out why this is taking place, maybe you could have a little peace. So you think, well, God, you're all-powerful. So this is not a situation too big for you to handle. But you're also supposed to be all-caring. And isn't that where we usually start to compromise? We think, I don't doubt for a moment you're big enough to do whatever you want. But I would think by now you'd have stepped in. And I'm missing something here. And what I've learned through years 
of watching this in my own life and in others is that when you can't lean on your own understanding, which, by the way, is supposed to be the way that we're told in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, because there are things you just not only don't know, you really can't know. You can't lean on what you do. And faith says, I am not smart enough to understand this, but I'm going to trust anyways. This woman at this particular situation somewhere is in a school of prophets. You'd think she'd be going from prophet to prophet to try to find out. Could someone seek the Lord for me and tell me what's going on here? But she goes to Elisha instead. And Elisha, being a person who seems to be concerned, he's like, well, what can I do for you? And somewhere in it, did you notice that verse 2 almost seems to be like two directions at the same time in this conversation? I wonder if somewhere in all of this, there was a natural knee-jerk reaction verbally, and then God had a chance to get a hold of him. You ever do that? Someone starts to come to you when they start to, to, to unload on you because from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew 12, 34. And, and somewhere in all of that, they are pouring forth angst and weirdness and freak out. And all of this is kind of spilling out of their mouth in a torrent. And somewhere in all of it, they're, 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 I'm not even sure at first because this happens. I don't know. I don't even think it's my personality. Maybe it's my position where it's like it just starts happening. And then you're kind of like, are you here to try to get help with that? Or do you just need someone to dump this on? And, you know, and it's just coming and it's coming hard and it's coming heavy. And that kind of stuff starts steering into bitterness. And at the first of it, it's like, I don't know why God would do this. How could, how could God do this to me? And we're just kind of listening. You ever do this and you listen and you kind of nod, right? You're kind of nodding because that's what we do to let you know. I just want you to know I am listening and I'm taking in what you're saying. And then somewhere they're going to say something that's such an affront to what you know, you kind of have to now be awkward to stop doing that. No, you're not going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Because you can't, "Uh uh-huh, what's going on anymore because now it's moved to a very unbiblical and weird place. Somewhere in it, it's like there's a part of you that kind of wants to react because you care about people. And then God gets a hold of it and he says, well, let's solve the problem. Let's not just pour compassion. Now, please understand something. Compassion, the idea of that, well, and I love the word splagness. The the word that's actually used literally means to have soft innards. Uh, And the idea of it is, is that your insides hurt when someone's hurting. But there's a danger in being so compassionate that you can do it at the expense of someone else. You know what? Somewhere in it, he's like, first of all, what can I do for you? What do I do for you? And then he's like, wait a minute. Hey, what do you have in the house? Notice how we went from just kind of offering himself to her to offering himself to God. And can I recommend that for every one of us? You know, it tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 onward, where it starts talking about what a spirit-filled life would look like in the household. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And, and, and as you start to read through that, especially if you're seeking to be a good husband, as I, would, as I am, and, or seeking to counsel other men to be good husbands, as I'm doing, it's easy to miss a very, very small word that is crucial and essential. Listen, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved. That's past tense. Brings me to an event versus an emotion. Christ loved in an event, and that's how I'm to love my wife. And that event is the cross. He gave life to give life. But then it says, and gave himself 
for her, not and gave himself to her. Now, that doesn't mean he's refraining himself from her. The idea is, is you surrender yourself to one of those two for the seeking of the benefit of the other or the blessing of the other. And earlier in my marriage, I'll be honest with you, I would seek to give myself to my wife to bless God. And God's like, that's actually not the way it's written. You seek to give yourself to me to bless her. And that changed everything. Because nobody knows how to bless my wife better than my God does. And that same vermicular token, if you will, take a look at this. It tells us that's kind of what happens. At first, he just starts to give himself to her. Well, what can I do for you? And then somewhere in it, God sort of steps in and he goes, okay, actually, this is what God has to say. What do you have in the house? And the difference is this. I may be able to offer a temporary consolation in my compassion, but God can actually offer a, a solution. And that's what's happening here. Her response, of course, is your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Do you see that there in verse 2? Now you see, well, we're not going to tackle the whole chapter. There are different words for jar, for what it's worth. And I'll give you two Hebrew words, just so you know. The, if you will, the umbrella statement for an earthen vessel, all earthen vessels sort of fit in this, is the term kili. Try that word, kili. Come on, it's Hebrew. Hebrew, you have to go. Keli. Keli is a word that means basically any earthen vessel. Uh, if you're ever at our house, you will see them. I mean, I was going to bring a few, but it's raining, and they're all made of earthen materials. Rain and snow do not match well with that. Uh, and I, anyways. And, but there, I mean, that could be a pot, that could be a bowl, but basically all of those things fit into the idea. We might say container. Go get containers. Does that make sense? And then there can be different words that sort of speak about the size of the containers. That's a pot, that's a pan, this is a flask, and so forth. Now let me give you another word, our last word on this, asuk. Try the word asuk. Asuk is a specific type of jar. It is a very small jar. It is roughly the size of my hand, and it is a jar specifically used for anointing. So put in your head what kind of jar you would think would come for as an anointing jar. Now we're talking about something roughly the size of, this is, by the way, not an energy drink. This is just a vitamin drink. It says it right there, at least, a vitamin drink. Uh, and it's roughly the size. The reason I say that is when he asks, what do you have in the house? She says, I really don't have anything, which tells us that's a pretty barren house. But I do have this one thing. I have this little asuk of oil. I have this little anointing jar. That's all I have. And I love the idea that that's what it is. Now, that tells me something about the household, that her husband was a prophet. Those were, and you're probably aware there are different degrees of olive oil. Uh, and you can do the same if you walk into a store today. It goes from, like, nasty whatever stuff that's sort of the generic no-name, no one even wants to claim it, to the stuff that's, like, extra, triple, extra virgin. You know, I, I, mean, I remember just reading that the first time when I was a kid going, I don't even want to know what that means. And if that's that, I don't even want to know what it means on the other side. But... Uh, the idea of it is, is that originally when the olives were picked, and you can do, there are certain places. Italy is one of those places, by the way, because it's a Mediterranean thing. Portugal actually is another place because there are olive groves down deeper south you go. Um, but there are two different ways to do it. And one of those particular ways, the more contemporary way, involves machinery. But there is a problem with all of those things, and that is that you really you either have to remove the, the stone in the middle of it, or you have to crush it in such a way so that you don't crush the stone. Same thing happens with grapes. 
That's why they use feet, because if you break the seeds, it becomes bitter, and nobody wants to drink that. Now, in the case of the olives, traditionally the idea was is that this big, fat, heavy stone was put on the end of a very crude plank. It was just roughly made stra- straight. That was it. And uh, that's a whole other story that, com- that by the way, predates to the idea of pulling the speck versus the plank. Because the, the apprentice within a, a carpenter shop would be about those big crude things. He'd just make these big crude things like a plank. But with that, on one side of it was this big, fat, heavy stone. And it was too heavy. So that what happened, it was too heavy for the, uh, for the olives to keep their consistency. So what happened is that as it would be set, that weight would be set. What they would say is that the blood of the, of the olives, has a, a, that's the originals, the sweat and the blood of the olives. Because obviously it's clear at first and then it starts to change colors. Interesting, by the way, the idea of it is that this weight was so heavy that it now is forcing out of the olive the things that you need. Why is that so important? Because the term olive press, the term for olive, by the way, is the term semnas. The term for, for press is gut, like gas. So when you have an olive press, what you have is gut semnas. That's where we get the term Gethsemane. For what it's worth, Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. Likely at the bottom, and you know why that is, right? Who wants to carry their olives uphill once they've picked them? So, somewhere in it, imagine that there is a garden in Gethsemane. There is to this day. And in that garden, a stone so heavy was placed is placed upon the olives that the blood and sweat come out of the olives. And this is the purest oil there is. They call it first press. Because in that same garden, my Savior, Jesus Christ, fell to his knees. And there, sweat like blood came out of him. Have you ever had anyone say, because they think they're so smart, this happens, could God ever make a stone so heavy he couldn't lift it? You get the idea, right? Because obviously what that means is God's going to be obviously incapable on one side or the other. Because if he can't make a stone too heavy for him to not lift, well, then he's limited in his creation abilities. But on the other side, if he can't lift it, well, then he's not strong enough to carry it. Ah, I'm so smart. I love to say, well, here's the cool part about faith. God did make a stone so heavy it couldn't be lifted, and it crushed his son. And then God raised him from the dead. That stone in the garden was the weight of your and my sin. And there, if you were to watch those olives, that's what would happen. Now, ultimately what happened is, once that pure oil came out, that was only used, by the way, for two things. One was the oil in the temple temple or tabernacle uh, for the menorah, for the lampstand, or the other was to anoint kings and prophets. Uh, That is obviously what he has here. And then it goes from there down to heavier, heavier uh, means. Normally, the stuff in a lot of the places we've been in Italy, they use the machines. What happens? It grinds it up. You never get that first press stuff. So what you get then is the stuff that kind of comes with the mash, you know, at the end of it all. And then it's kind of chunky. And then it's, but it's like, hey, you, you, don't, you don't throw away anything. By the time you're done, you're left with that goo at the bottom. And that goo at the bottom is still used for medicines, by the way, and for um, cosmetics as well to this day, for what it's worth. All of that to say this. She has the best oil there is in the house, but she has a tiny little thing of it. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, I get this, the point, because there is an earthen vessel. It's a specific earthen vessel, and it actually has 
the oil, this perfect pure oil in it, be it just a little. Now, those who are students of Scripture know that the oil often refers to that of God's Holy Spirit. But what does the earthen vessel often refer to? Yeah, when it says in Second Corinthians, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the glory would not be in us, but in God. We're the earthen vessel. Think of what you're made of. We are, as simple as God says it, we're just dirt balls that God shaped into human beings and by His grace through the gift of Jesus Christ has filled with His Holy Spirit. And you think, well, how in the world can I change anything? Well, He has a specific request for this now. The starting point, all you have is one earthen vessel with, we don't even know how much oil is in it. And he says this in verse 3. So go borrow vessels from everywhere. Now, pardon me for saying this, but the word borrow is a dangerous word here. The word is sa'al. And sa'al means to ask or beg. The, the reason I say that is the word borrow is an interpretation word. And there are those that, because the idea of it is, is it's during a famine. We would see that with the second story. But in this particular story, I'm going to be honest about it. You're going and you're asking people. He goes, just in essence, go beg and ask for people to give you their earthen vessels. But we need, we need one requirement with those earthen vessels. The, the requirement was not how tall or short, whether they've been kilned or not, was not how fat or thin. Do you know what the one requirement for every one of the vessels she was to get was? They had to be empty. Excellent. Go get empty vessels. Empty vessels, because empty earthen vessels can be filled. So she's borrowing. Now, the reason I say that is, is I'm not too sure I'm going with borrow because this would be kind of a weird thing. We've read the story now. Imagine if it will, someone shows up at your house and says, hey, do you have an, do you have an empty plastic, what do we call them here? Because we call them Tupperware in the States. What do we call them here? You know, they're just those things with the, they seal that you get at Chinese restaurants when you're done with everything and it's like, okay, that's, that's for your leftovers. If anyone orders from Deliveroo, you know, they're just plastic containers, right? With lids. Whatever the case is. Imagine if you're going in, can I have that? Because what I'm going to do ultimately is I'm not sure, but God's going to do something cool and then I'm going to sell this back to you. If you're borrowing it, it seems a little weird at the moment, doesn't it? But nonetheless, he sends her to ask. Borrow, you can go as an interpretation, nonetheless. And I want you to get as many as you possibly can. Please know this. Your success in all of this will not be because of the jar you have. The only thing this is going to be around is how many jars you're willing to get. And again, I remind you, that's our, this word here for vessel is that word that's kiddi. That's the word that means anything. So that's a pot, that's a pan, that's a tub, that's anything that's made out of earthenware. You know, you might be coming in with those giant, like, wok-looking things, you know, or you might be coming in with one of those things that you can buy at, like, Ikea that you stick, like, sticks in and call it decorative, right? You ever see those things that are, like, you know, a meter tall, and then you're, like, you stuck, you stuck like, three sticks in it, right? And you're, like, that's pretty awesome, well, anyways, what do I know? Uh, if you have one of those, I mean no insult. But imagine you come back with those. Now, I remind you, at this particular moment, she still has her sons, which is a good thing. So that means that that particular Ikea vas, the boys can carry. So go get them. And by the way, get as many as you can. Now, let me ask you, in such a case as this, how many would you get? I mean, if it were you, how many doors would you knock on? Well, let's start with this. 
The thing about debt is it has this nasty way of actually taking a slow walk with you, if that makes sense. Normally, in most circumstances, you don't just get blindsided by a big debt. Now, that can happen. There's no doubt. But traditionally, what happens is you start seeing that somewhere down the line, the ins are a lot smaller than the outs. And somewhere in all of that, you start seeing, oh, I owe. Oh, I owe more. I owe more. I owe more. You're seeing that. And the reason I say that is it has to get to this point, and this is the problem with us. I'm just going to be honest here. We're just not desperate. This woman is desperate. She's desperate because she's going to lose her boys. And she does not want to lose her boys. But when you're not desperate, you'll knock on a couple doors. Because you know why? It's awkward. You're asking for someone to be kind to you. And, hey, you got a jar? Can I have a jar? Can I have a jar, please? It's a weird thing. But I guarantee you, if one of my children was in the balance, I'd be meeting everyone in my neighborhood and then some. The difference is huge. You're walking down the street, and I, I run into a guy right in front of a Sainsbury's. And the man's like, hey, bro. Rav, I've been eating in three days. Could you help him out? Could you help a brother out? Yeah, man. So you're hungry, I'm guessing. Yeah, brother, I haven't eaten in three days. What do you think? All right, man, I'll tell you what. We're standing in front of a Sainsbury's. Why don't I get you some food? Where? Sainsbury's, man. Like what? I don't know. There's probably sandwiches in there. Can I just buy you a sandwich or two? Does it have mayonnaise? Are you allergic to mayonnaise? No, I just don't like it. I have a hard time believing that you haven't eaten in three days. After three days, I drink coffee. And some of you know that's a big deal. Now, the whole point's simple. Could there possibly be a way that God could foster within us a genuine desperation without our circumstances having to be so desperate? Because I would really love to be desperate for God without my world falling apart. How about you? If, we, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, every breath and heartbeat we get is unloaned by God. And we are desperate for Him. We just don't necessarily think about it a lot. Well, humble yourself. Recruit the empty vessels. Gather as many as you can and then get home alone. And once you get home alone, start pouring. Pour into them, man. Pour into those empty vessels and pour into them. And I, I mean, if you've got something like this, it's chances are if the first thing is, is bound to be larger than that, chances are you're not going to go and get the little thing unless, you know, that's what they give you. But so imagine you will, you've got something and it's just in essence, you know, 200 milliliters, 100 milliliters. And, you know, someone brings in this big old bowl and you start pouring and you just know at some particular point in this, you're going to run out and the whole thing gets full. And they're like, oh, and think about this act of faith. And then she's, all right, boys, move it. Get the next one. And she continues to pour. And as long as she continues to pour and as long as there continues to be empty vessels, there will continue to be oil running. And ultimately, what happens? Notice in this, this didn't just pay her debt. I love this. God doesn't just solve the current crisis, but he meets the future needs as well. Did you notice that? He's like, no, look it. Let's get that debt settled so you can keep your boys. And then the rest of this is what you're going to live off of now. Now, how long are they going to live off of it? We just don't know. But apparently oil sold for quite a bit, don't you think? 
What a gift and a beautiful thing of God. Let me move to the second story because now it gets a little bit more complicated and beautiful, but just the same. And I just want to say, in application in our first section, it's a simple thing. Are you willing to cry out to God to be desperate for him without your circumstances all falling in the toilet? Because if that's the case, where you would be willing to go out and start recruiting empty vessels, look for people that are open and say, how can I pour into you? Because what I really, really want is for you to know Jesus. Because if you knew Jesus, this whole thing would change in a big way. Verse 8. Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem. Shunem, for what it's worth, means double resting place. It's from the tribe of Issachar, according to Joshua 19. It's in essence about three miles north of Jezreel Valley and five miles south of Mount Tabor and Gilboa, if that means anything to you. And it's also roughly 15 to 20 miles uh, east and such of Mount Carmel, which will come important in the story somewhere. It is known, by the way, up to this point, because it's where the Philistines encamped when Saul died. And ultimately, that's what it took for David to become king uh, to follow in his steps. The other thing that's important to note is there was a particular gal, the only gal we read very beautiful in Scripture, by the way, uh, who, was fr- who was a Shunammite, if you remember that, who was in essence hired to be David's electric blanket. He, she was a human duvet, if you will. Um, she, we read, hey, David was old and he couldn't keep warm, and they said, we know this beautiful girl, let's just bring her in. And by the way, her name is Abishag, which just... Yeah, that's that's just unfortunate. But it's sort of like I remember just remember thinking this is just going to turn into all kinds of like weird Christian techno songs. Like you could be my Abishag, but it's just wrong. But all of it is, and it says he never knew her in the sense of not that they never met, but they never knew each other carnally. And it was sort of like she just basically was there to help keep him warm. But God called her very beautiful. Nonetheless, that's what we know about Shunem until this particular point. And it says there was a notable woman there. She persuaded him to eat some food, which, by the way, for me, doesn't normally take that much persuasion. So it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there and eat some food. Now, notable means the girl had money. So she said to her husband, look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who has passed by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair within the lampstand. So it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. In other words, she's like, honey, he's a man of God. First of all, note that the term man of God is used 73 times in Scripture. 40% of them are used of Elisha, for what it's worth. This guy that you kind of think doesn't get much of a write-up, oh no. For what it's worth, by the way, to give you an idea, it is nearly five times as many times as Eliyahu, or Elijah, the guy that, that was preceded him. Uh, Moses has called it, for what it's worth, three times, twice in uh, the Torah, and then once in First Chronicles. Nonetheless, she says, look at honey, this is a man of God. Because he's a man of God, we need to put an addition on the house. Because this guy needs a place to stay as he's kind of had. Now, traditionally, prophets like this would go on a circuit. And remind, remind you, when Elisha followed Eliyahu around, they started at Gilgal, and then they worked their way around at Bethel into the Jordan, ultimately. Oh, it should be Bethel, and then it's Jericho, and then Jordan. And what he's doing, he's kind of making his route back around. Obviously, he would pass through Carmel. We'll see that here. Uh, but ultimately, he'll make his way back to Gilgal. And that's what we kind of see ultimately in this chapter. Now, in this, he kind of looks and says, hey, this is, a, this, is a kind of important, this is a kind of important guy. And I think we really should kind of give him a guest house. Notice, by the way, this is definitely not the Hilton. She's like, this is all the guy needs. He needs a bed because he's going to sleep. He needs a table and a chair because he's going to study. And he's always going to need a lamp. So in other words, it's sleep and study. That's what he gets. 
Kind of like that. There's something about this that sounds so beautiful right now. And by the way, you were probably aware that his predecessor, Elijah, also took aid from a widow in Zarephath, by the way. First Kings 17. And God tells us, by the way, to entertain strangers. That book most people don't like to read that I'm in love with, Leviticus 19.34, a stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And I love it, and he says, I am the Lord your God. I challenge you how to count how many times in the book of Leviticus God says, I am the Lord your God. If you've ever been a parent, you know this. If you can remember your parents or you live with them, you probably hear this to this day. Sometimes parents don't want to have to explain to you every reason that they're giving you to give you a command. And sometimes they're like, because I'm your parent. That's why, because I'm your dad. And God's like, this is what I need you to do, because I'm the Lord your God. Oh, and by the way, whatever it's worth, when you find a dead mouse in your pot, don't gift your pot to the next guy, to your neighbor, because I'm the Lord your God. And when there's a guy that's blind, don't like stick stuff in his way so he trips and falls. You know why? Because I'm the Lord your God. It's almost like God's like, I really don't have to tell you these things. And don't eat bats. Let me tell you why. Because I'm the Lord your God. For what it's worth. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, it says, Don't forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some have unwittedly entertained angels. Now, wouldn't that just be one of those cool moments to tell someone later? The term for hospitality, by the way, in Scripture is the term philexenos. Uh, Phileho means to love or to befriend. Xenos means strangers. To this day, by the way, if you go to Greece and you want to stay at a, whole, a hotel, they call it a xenotohio. Xenos means stranger. Thohio means box. You are literally staying in a stranger box. This tells you a little bit about the attitude of the Greeks to the rest of the world. So, hey, build an addition on the house, honey. This guy keeps walking by. Let's give him a place to stay. Verse 11. It happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. And he said to Kahatsi, his servant, by the way, it's the first time we meet Kahatsi, and I don't know what Kahatsi's doing while he's taking a nap. Is he laying on the floor? Is he, is he wiping the table? By the way, for what it's worth, Kahatsi will be named uh, 12 times, I think, in Scripture. His name means literally Valley of the Visionary. It's kind of a fun name. Uh, but what we're going to find is, is that the guy's got a couple uh, things missing. Not everything's firing in the engine on this guy. And it says, he said to the servant, call the Shunammite woman. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to her, say to her now, which always seems a little weird. Maybe this is his way of making sure he's accountable, but just the same. Eliyahu was, said, go call for her, and she's there, but he's going to speak through Gehazi to her. So say to her, she appears to be there right now, look, you have had concern for us, us, not just me, with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak to the, on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answers, so she's clearly there to hear it. I dwell among my own people. Now, if you remember in the last chapter, Jehoram owes Elisha a solid because he pulled a solid with the Moabite battle. Remember, they were going to die of thirst until they got him. So he kind of owes him one. He's kind of in his back pocket that way. Just the same. Interestingly enough, this gal's going to appear again in 2 Kings 8, and she is going to need the favor of the king, but God's already granted it to her. We'll get there on another day. So do you want me to do all that? She's like, I do all among my own people. I don't need any of that. I don't need like, you know, any of those like, I don't need to be knighted. So he said, well, well, then what then is to be done for her? Now at this point, apparently she seems to have left. She's answered, she's left. And he says, so what do we do for her? Gahatsi answers. And notice it's Gahatsi's mindset. This is his suggestion. Well, actually, she has no son and her husband is old. Hmm. 
So what happens if her husband dies and she's left without his son? Sounds a lot like the first story now, doesn't it? So he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace his son. She says, no, my Lord, man of God, don't lie to your servant. And it is tough at a moment like this when God wants to give you a promise to something you've already settled as a failure. You ever have those? Imagine you're saying, I finally settled in my heart. I finally have closure. This is just something I've lost at. I'll never get this. I'll never have a son. And he goes, you will. Notice he doesn't argue with her. Verse 17 says, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when the appointed time had come, which Elijah told her, and the child grew. Different words for child for what it's worth. Almost all of them, because you probably know every Hebrew word is based on a verb. So they have to take a, you, you, you suck, chew, lean, stand. These are all words that describe children, if you think about it. It's like how old they are. They're too old. They're too young to eat solid food. They, they're suckers. Then they get to the point where they can chew. And you're like, hey, guess what? You've graduated in your age. To the point where you're like, now you can lean. You can't really stand, but you can kind of hold on to mom or dad. And then you get to the point where you can stand. These are all terms in essence that are used in one way or another to refer to a child. But then there's that general term, kind of like there is with, with general... Um, like with all the containers. And that term, by the way, is the term yeled, and that's the term that's here. God is not focusing on his age. He's focusing on the fact that he belongs to mom and to dad. And it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, my head, my head. So he's old enough to say that. So he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And that's, you know, you see that with a lot of dads. The kid's sick, go get mom. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon, and then he died. No parent should have to go through this, but parents will. We don't read there was any sin involved, that this was retribution. You can go, this just isn't fair. This was a child that came because he was a child of promise. And his death has been stripped. Now he's got to be small enough to be carried versus walking. She's going to be able to carry him too. And small enough for him to sit on her knees and die in her arms. But what she does is remarkable here. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. Remember that spare room? Now it's here. And she shut the door upon him. And she went out. Now why in the world did she do this? Well, seems to me she doesn't want the husband to know. And there's a reason for it. 3,000 years ago and less, you wrapped and anointed an individual right away and buried them. Though they didn't understand all of the things in regards to bacteria and so forth, like staphylococcus, flesh-eating stuff and all that, the stuff that actually helps things go back to dirt so that we just don't have dead people staying around forever. They do know, according to biblical law, that they're not to touch dead things. And so they want to make sure that they, they have this particular season, this period of time, and it's a very small period of time that you can take a child or an individual and anoint them and bury them so that you're not still completely called unclean. So it's like you want to get that done right away, but mom's not doing that. Mom is hiding this boy from any of that process. 
because she has someone she needs to go talk to. It is important to note at a moment like this, is there any possible thing that could be said to you that, would help, that your understanding could then conquer the, the lack of peace you would have in a moment like this? Is there any statement possible that could be said to you that you're like, oh, okay, then it's okay. Well, she went to her husband, she called her husband, and she said, please send to me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. Now, I remind you, boy was ill. It's possible heat stroke. I mean, think of the things that could happen in a place like this. Whatever it is. And she's like, I need to go see the man of God. And his response is, well, it's not a holiday. He says, well, why are you going to him today? It's neither the new moon nor a Sabbath. And she says, it is well. Do you see that there? Now I have a story to tell you. And then we'll finish this up. Have any of you ever heard of the name Horatio Spafford? Well, you'll hear about him tonight. He's a homie. And what I mean by that is he was uh, from Chicago. 19th century, that means in the 1800s, he was a lawyer and a Presbyterian elder. Also friends with a man you may be familiar with named D.L. Moody. Familiar with him at all? The uh, prominent evangelist. The 1860s were bumper years for him. His law firm was doing remarkably well. The church that he was in had him in a place of, of, of responsibility that he actually seemed to very much enjoy. And he was good friends with one of the most prominent uh, Christian leaders of the day, D.L. Moody. But then came the 70s. Now, you're probably not taught this in your history, but in, eh, I think it was October 12, 1871, there was the House of the O'Learys. Catherine O'Leary, I believe, was her name. And she had a cow. And in her barn, the story goes, or the legend goes, that, the, that the, there was a uh, lantern that was left in the barn, and the cow kicked the lantern over, and it started a fire that within, a, within hours turned into something four miles by one mile wide. It is known as the Great Chicago Fire. And in that Great Chicago Fire, businesses and lives were lost. For Horatio, all of his life savings and his business ventures and his estates were all burned to the ground. Just like that. Didn't see it coming. Within a year, he loses his only son to either scarlet or typhoid fever. So he wants to recover. It has been a really rough couple of years. So you know what he says? You know, let's go on a holiday. Let's go on. And where do we want to go? Let's go to England. Because that good friend of ours, D.L. Moody, is going to be preaching there in the fall. So wouldn't it be just kind of cool to go to England? We'll kind of just detox from all of this. And that's, by the way, that's a healthy thing. So he books tickets on the Ville de Havre, which is a, a vessel, a sailing vessel that traditionally goes from New York to the north coast of France. Books it for the 15th of November, 1873. The problem is, is just before he was about to leave, all of the, the accounts had not been settled in regards to the fire and he was forced to stay to settle these real estate business ventures, at least for a moment, which means that he would have to take another ship. And the ship, this particular ship sailed without him. A week en route between New York and the northern coast of France. 
on the 22nd of September at 2 a.m., the ship collided with an iron clipper named the Loch Urn at about 2 o'clock in the morning, I remind you, which forced everybody that was on the vessel to wake up abruptly and run to the deck. As it was so, the ship was split in two and it took less than 12 minutes for the Viltus to sink. The captain of the Loch Urn, on the other hand, Captain Robertson, saw how, though he had a ship that was badly damaged at the bow, which is the front, the bow, by the way, he still took afloat as many of the passengers as he possibly could from the ship. 61 passengers, 26 crew members were rescued, but 226 people perished. The problem was, is that now this particular ship was not this... Well, I mean, this particular vessel was not built to contain that many people, and it started to sink. And what was worse, of course, is the front end had been bashed in because of this particular encounter. But by God's grace, at the same time, an American cargo ship showed up called the Tremountain that was en route to the UK. It took on all the passengers, just as the bulkheads gave way on the locker, and so that it sunk. And then, of course, even the crew abandoned the locker. And so both of the ships in the collision were sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Among those who were rescued was a woman that was found unconscious and floating on a piece of wood, and her name was Anna Spafford. It was Horatio's wife of 12 years, but who wasn't found nor rescued were Annie, Maggie, Bessie, and Tanetta, their four daughters, 11, 9, 5, and 2. Remember, he had sent mom and the girls ahead on the ship, though he was unable to make it because he had to finish business. Now, he doesn't know this. I remind you, he's still in Chicago at the moment. Nine days after the sinking of the view, Anna arrives in Cardiff and sends a telegram to her husband says, Saved alone. What do I do? All is lost. Needless to say, he jets out of Chicago to, to get to his bereaved wife, and he takes the first ship he can find. He asks the captain as he's on the ship. I know this is a very odd request, but would you be willing, please, to let me know the spot where my family died? Because it's the same route they're taking at this moment. And he goes to his chamber and begins to read the Bible. It's the only comfort he can find at this moment. And he's not sleeping. And as he's reading... There's a knock at the door early in the morning, late at night. And the captain says, that's the spot. And do you know what he was reading? This text. Where the woman says, it is well. As a result of that, this lawyer begins to write. And this is what he writes. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. 
My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It is well with my soul. That beautiful hymn came from the most painful crucible. I get why it says, when sorrows like a sea, like sea billows roll. Interesting. He will get to his wife. He'll take her back. She'll give him three more children. I believe girls named Bertha and Grace and a boy, Horatio Jr., who unfortunately he would lose within the next couple of years from scarlet fever. And so he has a group of people that the American media call the overcomers. And he takes his family and a very small group of people with them. They're very messianic and they wind up going to Jerusalem. And there they start uh, what's called the American Colony where they actually did a great deal of benevolence specifically around the time of the First World War where people were very greatly in need of these particular things. By the way, at this point, I remind you, he's got two daughters and no sons. He's lost both. And he meets a little boy named Yaakov Eliyahu, like Elijah. Eliyahu. And he adopts him, and that's his only boy. Somewhere before, I think it's four days before, his 60th birthday, he will die of malaria. And I remember hearing the story. If you've ever heard the story of this, and they said, well, the guy kind of went mad at the end of his life. But some of you who are familiar with malaria know there's two different kinds, and one of them is cerebral. Knowing that brought me such great comfort to know that it wasn't that all of these situations drove him mad. It's just that the poor guy had malaria. In Jerusalem today, you can visit the American Colony Hotel. It's on Louis Vincent Street for what it's worth. It's north of the old city, west of Hebrew University, and just due north of the tombs of the kings. By the way, if you go there, what you're going to probably find is the people who tend to use it the most are journalists, like people from like BBC and NBC and that kind of thing. So it's not necessarily what it was in the day, that's for sure, a hundred years ago. Now, we're getting back to the story, but I tell you what, for whatever reason, today, for whatever reason, this story has just taken me. I'm, I'm like, I've lost track of time spending time walking through this guy's life one more time. And in this particular story here, she, I remind you, there is a woman whose son has died and that was a son of promise. Let's close this up. She has run now and she's running to get to Elisha. She settled her donker, verse 24, and he said to her, drive and go forward, don't slacken the pace for me unless I tell you, hey, don't just slow down because you think I'm a woman. There's no way to stop me right now. Let's go. And she departed and she went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. By the way, roughly, again, 15 to 20 miles. Arguably, that could be a two-day journey, which would be interesting because if they go back there, that means he's been dead for four days. Does that sound familiar? Those of you who are familiar with John 11. So it was, when the man of God saw her from afar off, that he said to his servant, Gachatzi, look, the Shunammite woman, please run now to meet her. Now that, what that tells me is, is that clearly Gachatzi is a younger guy. You're going to get there first. Go and, and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with your child? And she answered, all is, it is well. 
Now, there's two different answers. That one is, I just don't really want to talk to you guys about this. Or the other is that it was because she's trusting in the Lord. That's the argument from which, of course, you bring Spafford into. Now, when she came to the man of God, on the other hand, at the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to push her away. Boy, that's a good servant to have, isn't it? What you want in your sidekick is a guy that's going to keep people in need away from you. Do you realize that the two things the disciples did the most in the Gospels is argue over who would be greatest and keep people away from them? They're like, oh, there's this guy, he's a blind guy, and he keeps calling out to you. We told him to stop. Oh, there's this guy, and he's performing. We told him to get away. I mean, it's amazing. It's like, oh, the kids are coming to Jesus. Get him out of here. Get, we don't, this isn't a place for kids. This is, Jesus is here. And he's like, will you let the kids come to me? And you should learn, by the way, because this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. It's just, there's unreluctant, total running to me, without all this, like, you, you don't think about being awkward, you just come. Oh, anyways. So he's pushing her away and he says, leave her alone. Her soul is in deep distress. You should probably see, you could probably see that, right? And the Lord has hidden it from me and not told me. And I love this about Elisha. He seems more shocked when God doesn't tell him something than when he does. Let me ask you, what about your life? Now, I mean, Eliyahu, by the way, it's important to recognize that God is just a servant. Now, that doesn't mean that he's less of a human being. But there's a guy that's considered the master in this particular story, and that's Elisha. And she is not going to go and just settle for something. She needs to go right to the master. And by the way, we need to learn that as well. The only difference is Jesus will always know what our problem is. So she says to him, and notice she starts by chiding him. Did I ask for a son of my Lord? Did I not say, don't deceive me? Now, my first thought is if I was Elisha, I would say, oh, that was Gahatsi's idea. It wasn't even my idea. Anyways, so he said to Gahatsi, get yourself ready. Take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, don't greet them. If anyone greets you, don't answer them. Seems a little rude, but if you've been in the Middle East, this isn't that weird. And if anyone greets you, don't answer them. But lay my staff on the face of the child. It says, The mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. By the way, those are the same words that this guy, Elisha, said about Eliyahu. If you remember, right before Eliyahu was taken in a chariot of fire. Now Gehazi went on ahead of him. He laid the staff on the child's face. There was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore, he went back to meet him and he said, it didn't work. The child's not awakened. Huh. There are going to be situations where nothing is going to work except the master. And that's going to be our last thing as we bring this to close as we get our last few verses in this. There are in those trials that need to purify our faith. First Peter says, trials have come that the purity of your faith, this is your faith, which is of greater value than gold, would be proven genuine and result in praise, honor, and glory when Christ is revealed. He's like, you realize what trials often do is they stick your faith in the fire to see what burns and what doesn't. The problem is we have a problem with putting our faith in God-ish things instead of God. And that's what happens. We could try the stick. And all a stick is, in the simplest sense, is a thing. So what's our thing? The power of prayer? Hey, I'm going to say something really dangerous. I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of the one you're praying to. Because if the power was in the prayer, you could pray to the wall. But there's great power in prayer if you're praying to the right one. You're like, well, I prayed, but it's just not working. Or going to church. Or memorizing scriptures. I mean, all these things are good things. But they're a stick compared to the master. Without Jesus, then it's just a stick. God would actually say, Second Kings 18, you're trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt? 
after we go to the stick and it doesn't work, whatever our thing is, we try the servant. In this case, it would be gachatzi. So you go to the prophet or the pastor or a deliverance ministry and you sit with someone and they do their thing and it still doesn't seem to work. And it's interesting because the only person we've not sought and it's the Savior. We went to the stick, we went to the servant and finally somewhere down the line you go, well, I've had it with religion and we build these crazy websites and talk about how everything you know, stinks but we've never actually gone to Jesus. So finally battered, we arrive at the feet of the Savior, the only one capable of the impossible. If Elijah believed in the stick or the servant, he wouldn't have actually keep going, but actually he knows it wasn't going to work. If she believed that the stick or the servant would work, she wouldn't have had to go either. She would have just gone with Gehazi. She wouldn't have had to wait for Eliahu, or I'm sorry, Elisha. So again, Elijah came to the house. There was the child lying dead on his bed. It could have been four days. He went in, therefore, and shut the door behind him, the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. God, what do I do? And God's going to say, I want you to do this. And I want to ask, which of us gentlemen in the room would go, okay, let's just put, let's give an age to this child. He's got to be young enough for mom to carry and to be engulfed in mom. Let's go with four or five. He's laying dead on your bed. I remind you, this is your bed, don't, because this is the addition they built for you. And he went and closed the door behind him and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and laid on the child, put his mouth on his mouth his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. Which one of you guys would go, all right, good with this, mouth to mouth. But the child wasn't alive. He was just warming up. So he returned and walked back and forth in the house. And I wonder in this, how many times God may have said, do it again. Do it again, Elisha. And he's like, really? I just like put my mouth on a dead kid's mouth. Put my I like I did like butterfly kisses with a dead kid. I mean I'm like trying not trying to be. And I mean, let's just be honest. This is horrible. And you realize sometimes one of the things we learn about Christians is we actually keep going where other people stop. When God tells us to do something, we actually keep going. He returned and walked back and forth in the house. Went up again, stretched himself out. Then the child sneezed seven times. The child opened his eyes. Now this child's alive. And he called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite woman. And he called her. And when she came into him, he said, Pick up your son. So she went and fell at his feet, bowed to the ground, and then picked up her son and went out. Who would be willing to make such a contact with a dead boy? My God, would the master would. God's not just going to wave his hand. Nobody sneaks off with a miracle. You should know that about the gal that had been bleeding for 12 years. She touches the hem of his garment and he stops the throng because somebody actually reached out and touched him in face. But God wants to make mouth to mouth because he wants to change your mouth and bring life to it. And eye to eye so that you could bring life to your eyes so that your, life could, your eyes could see life. And hands to hands to bring life to your hands so that what you do now brings life. And he's not stopping until you're ready. He's not stopping until you're living. And I'm so thankful for this. Although I have to be honest, if that kid opened his eyes and there was Elisha laying on top of him in this position, that would be a very odd moment for the rest of my life. But then you were dead before this. Now here, as we bring this to close, how many guys are willing to make this kind of contact with you? 
How many masters are willing to do this because you were dead? Scripture tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sin. It isn't that we could march up the hill and try to make ourselves right with God. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Romans tells us we were enemies in our hearts and minds to God. And here's the beauty in it. Because I couldn't go up, God came down. And he reached into my grave and pulled me out. And if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, he's done the same in your life. And God's not going to remove all of the troubles of life around you because it's in those troubles. Other people see your house is standing and they'll start to wonder why when nobody else's was. But I'm here to let you know my God brings life and hope where neither exists any other way. And as we go to prayer, let me ask, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? The one who died on the cross, even as Spafford would say, that all of his sins, not just some, but the whole, nailed to the cross. All your guilt and filth nailed to the cross. Because the weight of your sin and mine is what crushed our precious Savior in the garden. And when he died on that cross, the price was paid in full. Just like Scripture promised. And he was buried and just like Scripture promised on the third day he rose again to give you and me a new life. No longer under the tyranny of sin. No longer under the bondage of its effects. If you haven't accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I want to give you the choice to do so. But if you have, my prayer for you and for me tonight is that we will be available and open to be used by God. And stop just leaning on the stick or trusting in another servant. But just to cling to the master and say, wherever you're going, I'm going. And watch what he does through you. In faith. Will you pray with me, please? God, I want to thank you that you are a God that we don't worship to keep away, to keep from being wrathful. But you are a God that we worship because you're near. You never leave us nor forsake us. And I praise you for that. And tonight in this room, I pray, God, that you would just reach down And maybe there are situations in our life right now and they are storms and we don't get them. We just don't get it. Life seems so unfair. Because somewhere in all of it, we're just not as bad as these things seem to be coming at us. But is it more honest to say that you who are perfect in every way clothed in flesh, Jesus, on earth, tempted in every way yet without sin, received the sin of all mankind upon his shoulders and died a horrible, torturous death. How can I say that what my life is like isn't fair compared to what yours is? And you did all of that to redeem me? And I want to thank you, Lord. That doesn't mean the situations in my life are unimportant. They're still, they can still be challenging. But I thank you that the grace you've extended to me, where I, a horrible, rotten, miserable sinner, have been offered forgiveness, purity, and a home with you. Wow. That's just not fair either. And I want to thank you for that lack of fairness that we would call grace. Forgive me for where I've leaned more on the stick or a servant than I actually have sought to seek the Savior. And thank you, Lord, that moments like this are moments where we get to just be poured out as earthen vessels 
upon other vessels seeking to see lives changed. Please let me be somebody willing to cling to you and go where you go and not run to these other things, even though they're still within the confines of Christendom. And they should be things that, I mean, being in your word and being in prayer and being in fellowship, these are great things, but I just, they should never be at the abandoning of you. Tonight in this room, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, have you accepted the gift of Jesus? If you're not sure, you could say tonight, you can leave here sure. The Bible says if you're willing to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And that's a simple prayer. And if that's you tonight and you know it, just pray this prayer with me right now. God in heaven, yeah, I'm a sinner, that's obvious. But I believe you took all of that sin upon yourself, Jesus, at the cross. And you paid my bill that I wouldn't have to. And I know it was paid in full because just like Scripture promised, on the third day you rose again. And now you offer me a new life with you as the architect of my reinvention. And I say yes. Jesus, take the filth and nastiness, all of that death away from me and build me a whole new life now. I say yes to you to follow you where you go. And I don't have to understand. I just have to keep you on my scope. So Lord, may I cling to you now as I hand myself over to you in your name. If you agree with that prayer, simply ask you to say, Amen.